Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today, I am joined by Shelley Bridgman. Shelley, a huge welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. Thank you very much, Amy. I, I can't believe I'm with the queen of podcasters. There we go. <laughs> well, that's a title that I have been given by many, but it's, it's, it's not something I call myself. I just enjoy this field of podcasting and this medium is just such a joy. It really is. Just being able to showcase so many people's wonderful stories and in particular, their why. Their why, Absolutely. So where are we going to start today? I'm going to ask you, what is it you're doing at the moment, Shelley? Well, I'm, I'm coaching and I'm still practicing as a psychotherapist. Um, so they're my two bread and butter activities, but I'm doing a lot of training as well. Um, training with health workers and psychotherapists and, um, and speaking occasionally when I can too. And psychotherapy, which particular area do you focus on? Well, I trained a long time ago, but I pretty much only now, so I probably do more coaching than psychotherapy, but I've, I've got quite a narrow niche. I tend to work with um, teenagers and young people who are self-harming and, and suicidal. So there's a sort of particular way of, of working with that demographic, really. Um, often they've got an issue they're struggling with their, maybe their gender identity or something that's uh, connected but the, the common denominator would be that they're, they're sort of clinging on a bit so they come to you at this sort of last point or last need of rescue here um it varies i mean it tends to be that if you think of it if we're all honest most of us push our pain points away, don't we, until they become too much. But sometimes I get them a wee bit earlier. And um, often it will be at that point when life's got very difficult. And um, and it, and it, at the moment, of course, with what's been going on, it's been, you know, really busy as far as that's concerned. It's been a really tough time for teenagers and sort of early 20s, I think. It's been tough for everybody. But that isolation with not being at uni and not being at school, I think it's been particularly problematic. It's been quite hard. And how do people find you, Shelley? How do they get to Pretty much word of mouth, really, for that. Um, I, um, I don't, I've got a, a separate website for my coaching and speaking and, and, and so on. So it's usually recommendation. And, um, and I do have a, a website, which is Michelle Bridgman psychotherapy but as I said it may I mainly now get people through some kind of referral it makes a lot of sense 
And you, you mentioned it's a narrow niche of working with this particular group of, of young people and yeah. teenagers who are self-harming or suicidal or struggling with their gender identity. Mm. How did you decide that that was going to be your area of speciality? I didn't. It found me. I think that's what tends to happen in life, you know, that we, because uh, I'm sure we'll come to in a minute, it's something I've got personal experience of. So, and um, and I was doing quite a bit of work supporting a charity and so on. And it just, it's it's a small world really with that sort of thing. And uh, it just grew from a sort of standing start. But I was working supporting a, a charity who support young people. And I think, you know, once you get a few clients, then you become known. And, um, and it, it just goes from there, really. I don't suppose you have to beg people to come on your podcast now. <laughs> not <laughs> for a ever, long... <laughs> not if you ever did. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny, isn't it, actually? I was just casting back, because today when we're recording, it was exactly 17 months ago that I launched the show, and, and it's sort of 18 months ago since I actually had the idea. So it's... Yeah. Yeah, and, and I reached out to a handful of people, and then ever since then, it's just been a knock-on sort of ripple of people saying, oh, you must have this person on. Oh, I recommend this person, and it's been yeah. fantastic. So, yeah, it, again, it, like yourself, it did grow from a sort of standing start, and it's just evolved as as things do. Yeah. And I got into coaching really from it because there's a lot of nonsense talked about therapy, so, you know, because there's lots of different psychotherapies. And, um, you know, people usually make the distinction, which to, to a large extent is true, that when you're coaching, you're looking at outcome focus, whereas with therapy, sometimes you're dealing with a, an issue. But I got into coaching because um, it was one of those chance meetings. I knew somebody who knew somebody, and there was a young athlete a few years ago, and we were talking sort of um, club level, you know, 17-year-old who was expected to go on and do great things. Um, but there was a problem. There was something going on in her head because she was a slow starter, 100-meter runner, explosive speed, but was always kind of having to overtake everybody. And um, so I did we did some work with her. And it was quite simple, really, because as part of what I do is hypnosis. And it came out, she wasn't even conscious of it, that um, when she was very little, she'd been, I think it was even something silly like an egg and spoon race, and she'd been so keen she sort of jumped off too quickly and dropped the egg or full started or whatever and she remembered seeing her father walking away in disgust and um, she was only about six or seven and she, she'd forgotten it at a conscious level but of course she was sitting in the blocks as the expression goes and um, and that's how I kind of made the crossover really because when somebody who's a, a sports psychologist said well look you know don't get hung up on not going backwards you know, he had a great expression. He said, look, even Lewis Hamilton's got wing mirrors. You know, <laughs> he's, you know he's, looking, he's focused and going forward, but, you know, you, you, you check to see what's gone on as well. And I always remembered that. So, so I'm not averse to, if I'm coaching an exec or something, if we find there's a block, to say, well, look, you know, let's root this out, rather than just being sort of so dogmatic about having an outcome and not being allowed to, look back in the past. So I think there, there are a lot of links. And in fact, this, the therapy I um, study was Gestalt, which was um, founded by Fritz Perls and um, 
and Paul Goodman, but and Pearls was an influencer of NLP. So, you know, I think we can forget sometimes that a lot of these things are interlinked. You've got to be clear what you're doing, obviously. But um, but for me, it, it, it's like, why not use all the tools in the toolbox if you've got them? I love that. So you've now sort of conjured up this this lovely blend of therapy, coaching, hypnosis and an NLP to to, as you said, root out what may be underlying yeah. that people aren't aware of. I'm very so, clear about what I'm doing. You know, is it, yeah. is it coaching or is it psychotherapy? But there's nothing to stop you stopping and saying, hang on a minute. I think there's something we could deal with here. Um, yeah it's switching of hats and being very clear that you're contracting with the client that they're they're happy with you to try that with them sure absolutely yeah so you mentioned earlier that there was a personal experience that sort of led you into this work explore more about that Shelley well I actually started off being uh, I I remember I was 21 I have a good memory and um, uh, I was feeling very isolated and I became a Samaritan volunteer. And I did that for several years, but you know, it was obviously not paid, it was volunteering. And that sparked an interest in, in psychotherapy because I thought I wanted to do a bit more than just listening. So it, 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 it sort of spun off from there, really. But, um, you know, and, and you know, I came from an era, I remember when I was about, Five. I knew I was different, but I couldn't articulate it at that age. You don't have a vocabulary. And there really wasn't one anyway. I mean, it was before the internet. And I didn't know anybody else could be feeling the way I was feeling. And I remember being in um, in Liverpool. I had an aunt who lived there on holiday. And I remember reading in a newspaper. It was some awful pejorative language it used to get used in those days. And I remember this awful sort of foreboding of feeling a connection with it. I remember reading it and reading it and my mother came in and I sort of put the paper away just in, you know, so I kind of instinctively knew that it was something that is not okay. You know, you don't talk about it. And um, there was no language for the words that we use these days, you know, trans this and trans that just didn't exist. So I did what anyone else would have done at that age and just suppressed it, really, and just got on with it because that was that was the only thing I knew you could do. And, um, you know, and I coped. I'm not saying my life was a misery. It wasn't. You know, I enjoyed a lot of my childhood in many respects, but it was always nagging away. It was always this thing that was sitting on my shoulder the whole time. And um, got to teenage at school and I didn't get on. I hated school. First day I went, I hated it. And the last day when I left, I hated it. I'm sorry, you know, I take no pride in saying that. I actually left at 14. It was before my 15th birthday. And um, I think that's mainly why I went on to get a master's in in psychotherapy, just to prove that I wasn't stupid to myself, you know, because that's what the teachers had told me. And um, um, so, you know, and I, just, I had a wild time in my teens and, 20s, clubbing, drinking, um, everything you shouldn't do, pretty much. But it was anything rather than being with myself. And I just filled the time. And um, and I went abroad with a friend and came back, uh, got a job in the travel industry because it was the only thing I was interested in. 
prior to that, I'd just done odd jobs. And um, I met somebody and we got married and, and didn't share any of my feelings because I thought I could suppress it. And um, we had two wonderful daughters. And um, gradually the alcohol took over. I was having a breakdown and, um, and it all came out and started to do something about it. I was lucky to have a family. My immediate family were very close. I had a lot of rejection from other, other aspects of family and friends. But, you know, we're talking this was like in the 1980s. It's a different climate to the one we have now. So, um, but, you know, um, all of these things, and one thing I've learned that I speak about a lot is that usually our, our biggest painful struggle is our, is our biggest gift because we dig deep into it because we have to and we grow from it or we sink and there comes a point when um, when we have to make that choice so I, I, you know and I think a uh, travel industry I mean look, I used to get off a plane from Los Angeles on a Monday and fly off to Berlin or summer on a Wednesday I was having a ball but you know I was gradually killing myself with work and and alcohol and uh, it all came to a head and couldn't do it anymore. And I literally had a breakdown. Although it wasn't um, literally diagnosed as that, but I now know from you know the work that I've done, that's what's happening. And um, on a trip to South America, I, there's a long story behind that, which I won't go into. I just remember thinking, look, you've got to do something. You can't carry on like this. So I came back. Um, said to my partner, look, you know, I need to go ahead with this now. You, you knew anyway it was going to happen. And I did. And um, and that was when everything imploded again because uh, we remember we're talking about the late 1980s and all my clients left because they would say things like um, one, one um, large corporation, household name, so I better not be naughty and name them, said to me, look, you know, we've enjoyed working with you, but we think it's a good time for a change, which I thought was the ultimate irony, really. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I had to put it into liquidation. And, um, and within a space of six weeks, I liquidated my company. My mother died. And, um, and I just um, I couldn't take it anymore. And I uh, took an overdose. But that's when it all changed for the better. Because my partner, bless her, said to me afterwards, if you ever do try that again, you better do it properly because I'll finish the job. If you don't, don't you ever try and desert your children again. And the one thing I've learned from working with people who are on the edge is that they usually don't really want to die, but they just cannot figure out how to live. And it's a really important distinction. And... Um, I wasn't quite aware of that at that time. And I remember, it gets back to the topic of your podcast, thinking, why am I still here? Why, why am I still on the planet? There must be a reason. And I sort of began that quest, really. So music to your ears with a, a title like this podcast. But that's literally what happened. And I searched and searched and I was... Uh, um, studying but I'm very lucky and one of the other great lessons in life for me is when the chips are down good people sometimes turn up when you're trying to do something 
and um, I was unemployable in the industry that I was in. And um, somebody said to me, look, if you're prepared to work hard, you can do quite well in financial services. And I thought, well, that's useful. I clearly don't know how to work with money. I know what I'll do. I'll advise everybody else on how to do it themselves. But um, I met this lovely, um, I, I was there for a while and I wasn't doing very well, but I, I think they saw I was trying. And there was a guy called John and he'd been very successful and he's a multi-millionaire from business and he wanted some mentees and I was chosen as one of four. And um, I literally just did everything he told me to do. I was so desperate. I thought, well, if he's made money from it, he's telling me to make X number of phone calls, do this, I'll do it. And interestingly, the other three all fell away because they didn't want to put the the hard yards in. And um, and it was my first taste of speaking because he was so pleased. He took me up to a conference that he was speaking at. I was petrified, but he sort of interviewed me on the stage, you know, um, and, and said what I'd done and how he'd helped me. So he was an amazing man. I mean, it was it was transformative. And he was so pleased. This is what got me really into therapy. He he gave me a gift of a ticket for Tony Robbins' first UPW in London. I think it was 1990 or 91, somewhere around there. And I went. And, um, and that sort of sparked a lot of interest. And I was learning more and more. And I'd been, you know, so... I'm now obsessive about human behavior and how we perform and, you know, um, emotional intelligence, all of those things. My head's never out of a book. I'm a terrible bore when it comes to reading. I've always got a Kindle on the go and a paperback. But I'm just fascinated about what makes us behave in the way that we behave. And um, there's no such thing as being an expert in that. We're all learning. And I think that's the biggest thing I've learned as well. Everybody's different. But I'm just fascinated by it, really. Anyway, he um, he was amazing. And he said to me, said, listen, if you want to work with businesses more, you need to do presentations. And I, I said, look, I've never spoken in public. I can't do that. It's petrified. very hung up about my masculine voice. And he said, look, go and join a Toastmasters club. And he lived in Maidenhead. And he said, there's one in Maidenhead. I'll take you there. So he went with me even. And this is a multimillionaire. He's working with some rookie, you know. He was, he was incredible. And um, anyway, I was there for a few weeks and there was a humorous speech competition and they put me into it. And I won it. And then I won a region and an area. I ended up going to the final of the Great Britain after uh, humorous after dinner speech competition and I was runner up and the winner was from Southern Ireland so in my eyes I was the UK champion but <laughs> I can't claim that but one of the judges said to me you know you should um that was very funny you should you should have you ever thought of doing stand-up comedy and I thought well that's a challenge um so I did and um and I was on the stand-up circuit for about eight years always in conjunction with work and um, the, you know, one woman shows at Edinburgh, took the last one to New York, having a ball, really. Um, but but I, I always knew it wasn't the end game. And uh, I think what stand-up did was probably made me a better speaker on stage. Because um, 
what you have to do is learn just how to do it. Um, it, you know, and I think we underestimate that sometimes, not just a case of getting a few PowerPoint slides. You, you, you don't learn. I mean, somebody said to me doing stand-up, said, you don't even know who you are on stage till you've done 200 gigs. And I always remember that. And I think there's a truth in it because it takes a long time to sort of figure out who you are on a platform. So my advice to anybody would be just do it, get it wrong and do it, you know speak you know i know it's a big thing about not speaking for free but you've got to get on your feet somewhere speak at a rotary club or a or a, a breakfast meeting but stand up and speak because that's the only so i i sort of got into speaking through the back door really because it was more from um from the angle of doing presentations and and comedy but it's been a an interesting journey to do that but I, I, I really can't emphasize enough the importance of just finding something that you're interested in doing it. You know, when we talk about why and purpose, is a part of it is the process of, of doing. Part of it is actually just getting the wheels going. You know, what do you, I always say to people, well, what are you good at? What do you enjoy? Well, start there. And then, you know, like me, you know, things happened and I got nudged in a slightly different direction. You can't just um, do a one-day seminar and find out who you are and all of what your purpose is and all that, what you might be able to, but I don't believe it. You see, and I did that for a long time. I was always looking for the answer out there. I was always looking to do some convention. You know, I did the, 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 that work with Tony and I've been to, I've been to dozens of seminars and i I don't know how much money I've spent on this, that, and the other. But then actually the answer was inside all the time. But I think sometimes, a bit like the alchemist, you know, you've got to go on the journey to come back to actually recognise where you're at. And I do have this insane, naive belief that everyone has been put on this planet to do something, you know, individually. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. You might want to be the best, um, well, I don't want to name a profession because it implies it's sort of seen as being low down, but whatever it is, do it to the best you can. See where that takes you. You know, if you like singing, go and sing. Join a choir if you can't join a band. You know, not everyone's going to be a big rock star, but that will take you somewhere else. Something will happen. And you'll meet somebody or something will be pushed in front of you and you'll make a choice. But do it. You know, we learn from doing, not from reading. We, we're human beings. But we're human doings, you know. I mean, we, we, we don't learn by reading textbooks, much as I love reading them. You know, nobody changes their life just by reading a book. You might get inspired, but you're not going to figure it out until you actually start moving forward but I mean that, that experience for me um, you know meeting that guy was incredible really because it set me off on that different path and if you think about it had I never had the challenge that I had I'd have well I'd be dead now but I would have just carried on drinking and swanning around the world you know staying in five-star hotels but it's not why I'm here and um and so I wouldn't have been true to myself. 
So whatever happens, you know, you, you pick up on it and deal with it. And my life's been no harder than anybody else's. Our experiences are just different. You know, everybody thinks they've got the biggest challenge in the world. Um, and I, I was away a few days ago, and I was um, by the seaside in the UK, and I was picked the right weather. And I got talking to a couple who had a very severely disabled child. I mean, that's a hard gig. Not what I went through. I mean, that's that's a challenge for the parents and for the young person. Yeah. And then when you look at something like that, you think, hey, what, what on earth am I groaning and moaning about? Not that I, I hope I don't moan and groan, but, you know, it's really important to just pick up on it and run with it. So, Shelley, what was it that you think John saw in you? I think it was... Um, you just saw that I was, I mean, I know what it was actually. And I was on the phone at half past nine one night making cold calls. And um, and I think he, he didn't say anything at the time because he was passing through. But I think he probably thought, well, look, if you're, if you're prepared to do that, you might listen to me. I don't think it was anything more than that. Just the fact that I was really giving it a go. And you said that the other three dropped out and, and you kept yeah. going. Well, one of the things that I was doing was, I mean, this is in the days before when you could phone people, but going in and phone, you said, you'll always find the CEO or the retired rear admiral in his office at half seven or eight o'clock before the secretary gets in. So that's when you need to make the phone call. So, and that's what I did. And uh, it wasn't that, you know, I, listen, I just, you know, NLPs talk about modelling, don't you? And that's all it was. I mean, I just thought if he's doing that I'll do it and he was an incredible man by the way because he uh and we were talking it was at the time of the uh, Balkans conflict in the early 90s and uh and he was running a big fund big he set up a charity fund and I I said to him John why are you so passionate about this you know I know it's a good cause and he said I'm a Jew and I was born in Berlin in 1932 how do you think I'm going to react when I hear the phrase ethnic cleansing? So he was so driven, you know, this real passion for supporting people, just amazing. And do you think that might have lent his belief in you, in, in you feeling alienated and being sort of cast aside? He would have recognised that in, in his own experience. He may have done. Yeah, he may have done. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm forever grateful. I, I just wish I thanked him enough. Probably I'm not not sure that I really did at the time. I did. I mean, I did obviously let him know, but um, but I think it stood me in good stead. Really, all of those various experiences, and um, and and I've kind of taken that with me really in in what I do now. And you mentioned that somebody said that you don't know who you are until you're 200 gigs. Who are you, Shelley? Well, I, I can give you sort of a nice sentence to put on a, a website, but I, I, I'm passionate about empowering people and particularly marginalised people. That gives me a buzz. You know, if somebody, for whatever reason, is on the fringes, then I'm really up for saying, come on, you know, something going on here. And I met some incredible people. 
I've, um, you know, I've worked with people who had been ready to sort of end it all at 13 and got a thirst at Oxford, you know. I'm not saying I was responsible for that, but, but you know, for just giving them something to cling on to, really. And it's just such a, such a big deal. It's fun, though. I mean, that's the thing. You know, coaching and, and working with somebody is fun. Got the interaction, which I love. And, um, you know, I mean, the truth is I was not good enough to be a, a professional stand-up, probably. But then I don't really mind because um, at one point I thought I'd love to do this. I remember being in New York thinking I've cracked it. I'm doing a one-woman show off Broadway. Is this, you know, this is it, and it didn't quite happen. But then I thought it's not meant to. You know, it's not meant to. We've all got something that we're going to be doing, and I think that still changes. I mean, the things that I'm doing now that will be different probably in a few years' time. Um, we don't know. We can't be say, well, look, this is my, you know, vision and mission. You know, how many times do we all talk about that? My vision is this, and this is my mission statement. That's fine, but be alive to the fact that you may need to tweak it a bit, may need to change slightly. Uh, you know, I'm a bit headstrong. I'll go flying into things. I always joke that if I'd been with Columbus, I'd have said, look, don't worry about the map. Just, just go. <laughs> we'll figure it out halfway across. <laughs> yeah, um, that was quite a long time ago, wasn't it? 1492 we, or something. <laughs> oh, I'm impressed by that. Um, I mean, it's not, um, yeah. You know, it's not one of my strengths, um, taking a back seat and planning. And, and, and it's, in fact, I shouldn't joke about it because it is necessary. So it's, but it's, not my, um, it's not where my skill is, really. So casting your mind back to that five-year-old who didn't have the vocabulary to articulate how you felt. Yeah. And, and then fast-forwarding to where you are now. What have been the, the proudest moments for you through that journey, Shelley? Um, my children. I'm very proud of them. Got two amazing daughters and, um, and two grandchildren now. Um, that was great. And, um, and I think one of the biggest things I've done is um, I, I took the UK government to law and I won a case in the European Court of Justice uh, and it took 11 years from start to finish. So um, I think that's something because I, I know it changed the law in several European countries as well. So yeah, that gave me a, a buzz. I'm not going to sit back here and say I didn't feel good about that. What did you change? Well, um, it's a bit of a rabbit hole this, but essentially I wasn't allowed to be um, female legally because I was married. So it meant annulling my marriage, and I refused. And um, I mean, now we've got same-sex marriages, it wouldn't matter. But at the time, it wouldn't, and it dug in, and it would affect benefits and all sorts of things. So um, and that was another illustration of good people showing up because... I lost in a tribunal and they said, there's no point in going any further because this is cut and dried. So I did, of course. And I went to an upper tribunal 
And then I was told, look, the only place to go now is the High Court, but you can't do that because we won't grant leave because it's a hopeless case. And I got a pro bono barrister. And I said, good people, show up. Thank you, Karen. She said she took it on and we lost, but we were we went to the Court of Appeal and then we got and a solicitor came on board and another barrister who's top, top um, QC, all working pro bono. And um, we lost in the Court of Appeal and we went to the Supreme Court and you don't lose or win there because they've got five judges, so they can make a decision, but they referred it to Europe. So in front of 17 judges in the ECJ, I was on one side of the court with my four members of the legal team and there were about 250 people on the other side with just a, a corridor down the middle. And um, that's where working with 300 baying drunks on a Friday night in a club came in useful because um, every time my name was mentioned, I'd feel all the eyes looking at me and I just turned 45 degrees and smiled at them. Um, and they had a, a big team of people. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Um, I can either say this is going to be a tough call or I can say they must be running scared here if they need that much firepower. And my barrister was absolutely one of the best orators I've ever heard. Any speakers who think they're a good speaker, and they need to go and listen to this guy. And um, his argument was flawless. And um, flew back home, and a year later we got the judgment. Nothing happens very quickly. A bit like Bleak House, if you've ever read Bleak House by Dickens, <laughs> where pieces of paper get passed around chancery. I mean, so you made 11 years for five cases, five stages, really. So each one was like two years. But I just thought, I'm not going to be, even if I lose, I'm going to, but boxers have got a great expression. They say, you always leave everything in the ring. And I thought, I'm not going to back down. You know, I'm going to take this absolutely as far as I can. And if we do lose, then I'll know that I couldn't have done anything else. But it was humbling. I had these amazing lawyers and all their expenses in Luxembourg and everything, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't even let me buy them lunch at the end of the hearing. Um, just phenomenal. And what did that create for other people? What did you change the law for them? What did they were they then able to do? Well, it meant that people could, you know, in I'm not sure which countries exactly it applied in, but they could get legal status without having to prove anything, you know, else or have certain conditions met. You know, i.e. in my case, you know, I mean, I've got two kids. I wasn't going to annul a marriage just to please a British government. R ridiculous. And um, I know it changed the law in um, at least two European countries. So um, that was pleasing. I, did, I never used to talk about it much. I got anonymity because I didn't want, because there was a lot of publicity. It was on the news and everything, but my name wasn't there, so nobody knew who it was. Um, but I don't much care anymore. And my daughters who were growing up said, oh, for God's sake, don't give them monkeys, you know. They're more laid back than I am. But, yeah, it's not newsworthy anymore anyway because it was four years ago now. Well, you mentioned that we're all put on the planet for something individually. Do you think that's yeah. what you were put on the planet for? No, no, not uh, bigger than that. Come on, Amy, we can aim higher than that. <laughs> so what's, no, what's think... next on the agenda then, No, Shelley? I don't know, but I just think I, th I just think pushing what I do as much as I can. And um, 
you know, I've I've decided I've, I've read so much garbage about it. I'm actually planning a. You heard it here first, folks. I'm planning a, a sort of three-day workshop next summer, probably in May or June, and, and taking a group of people away, really digging deep to help them find out some of these answers. You know, and I've already said you can't just read it in a book, but you can you can make a good start. You can understand yourself a bit more. And if we don't, you know, if you think about it, we all present a face to the world that we think is, you know, the world wants to see and we can cope with. Taking the mask off is is quite scary. But it's only when we do that that we can actually make real connection. You know, and you're going to hack off some people. Um, I've been attacked in right-wing newspapers and God knows what over the years. But then that's a badge of honour as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, if they're all happy with you, you can't be doing much. So, but yeah, I'm not out on any great crusade, but whatever gifts I've got, I want to explore it. And, um, and I like speaking and training and I, I, I love coaching and, and doing therapy. And I'll just get better at that as, as best I can. Just work at it, practice, learn new things and see where that goes. That's that's the most important thing. I don't want to, I get, oh, I, I, I must tell you, I don't know if you ever used to watch a thing called The Actors Studio on TV. A guy called James Lipton, he used to interview people, and he always used to have this questionnaire at the end. He used to get ribbed for it a lot by a French um, uh, presenter called Bernard Pivot, and he used to do this questionnaire, and he always ended up with, the last question was, if God exists, what would you want him to say when you meet him? Anyway, so somebody had obviously been watching this program in this country and asked me that question. And I said, well, the first thing I'd like him to say is, why are you so late? But, but, the, but, the, uh, but the second thing is, and not so much what I'd like somebody to say, but what I don't want anyone to say is, why were you never really you? That is the biggest crime that any of us can commit, you know? If you think about it, why were you never you, Shelley, Amy, whatever the name is? That would be unforgivable. What does it take to be you? I think just gradually peeling off the layers, finding courage. And if you haven't got it, get help from people. People will always help you if you put a hand out. Yeah, you know that from the work that you do. I, in my experiences, people were always, and I've found, you know, very senior, the more senior people are, the more willing they are to help. And um, I've had, you know, speakers, coaches, therapists, you know, I'll, I'll ring someone up or email them. And they always say yes. Very rarely will they say no. I, I mean, I would never abuse it. So I'm really fascinated by what you're doing. Can you put me in the direction of anything that I could read about that, whatever it might be? And um, and people will, but we we tend not to because we think, oh, I can't do that. I can't bother them. Well, they're too big. They're too important. I don't want to do that. And the, yeah, we won't talk about it now. But the big one of the biggest barriers is shame. You know, because we we sit there feeling a sense of shame about who we are. I mean, I had that for a long time, but it was only me who caused it. Nobody can make you feel shame. You can feel shame 
but you, you don't have to. Sometimes it takes a bit of help with that, but nobody can make you feel it. And nobody can actually make you do very much in life when it comes down to it. We make certain choices feeling that that's what everybody wants. But our real, um, our real persona, our real depth is about, you know, being me, being you, whatever that means. And not everyone's going to like it. Yeah. I find it quite shocking to think sometimes and not everybody loves me, you know, but... <laughs> But they don't. Well, I love you, Shelley. You're fantastic. But people don't, though, do they? And if you're doing anything useful, you're going to get people who won't like you. You can be bland down the middle of the road, but you won't get anywhere. But that's where we need to help people, I think, and give them a bit of, you know, a bit of hope sometimes, a few tools, let them know that you know that there's something that is there. And people have to do it in the end. I mean, we all we can do is try and give people tools. You know, I've never, I've never, I've never, I've never saved anybody's life. I've never changed anybody. I've, I like to think I've helped with some tools to give to them. But that's the most that I've ever done. Been preposterous to think that we've actually, you know, changed a life, saved a life. No, I haven't. I may have said to somebody, look, if you, if you do this, let's understand this. You know, maybe if you try that, maybe if you try this. And not given up on them, but they have to do it. So anybody who's thinking that they need some help and they may be needing that moment of hope that you can share and, and the tools that you can share, how would they get in contact with you, Shelley? Well, my website is easy enough. It's shellybridgman.com and my LinkedIn. Most of my spend most of my social media time on LinkedIn. So my that and my LinkedIn name is Shelly Bridgman. So they're the easiest two places, really. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure they go in the show notes because yeah. some people may may misspell Shelly and Bridgman. So yeah, with, too, the, with the ease no, in the different places. Too easy in Shelly and none in Bridgman. I always say I've had I had illiterate ancestors who couldn't spell. <laughs> well you certainly made up with that with your masters so all good Shelley it's been incredible hearing your story today and I know that people will want to get in contact with you especially with the retreat that you mentioned that you're going to be doing next summer that sounds incredible in that and just for the context that's summer 2022 and that will be the three days what will they be expecting to achieve on that and and how will you help them towards moving it into being the more them give them the intention is to give them the tools to help understand why they're thinking the way they're thinking who they are and what they believe their strengths are and really iron that out and and, and you know dig deep chuck away the garbage and help them to um, take the mask off and do you have some final words shelley I think all I would say is, you know, we've just come out of a pandemic. Life's pretty tough. Um, just been watching party political conferences. Don't rely on that. Lot. I don't care. You know, I'm not going to get political about a particular colour rosette. No one's going to change your life for you. You've got to do it yourself, but never stop believing that you're not special and that there's something that you're here to do that only you can do. That you have to cling on to that. That's the one 
truth that I know absolutely. And it's not always easy, but that's what you have to do. My favorite quote of all time, I didn't prepare to say this, so I'm going to paraphrase it. I haven't looked it up. It was uh, Camus, you know, the, ex the great existentialist. And he said, in the, in the depth of winter, I discovered that I had within me an irrepressible spring. And that, I get choked up just saying that now. I think it's one of the most profound quotes that I've read. And that inspires me. Thank you for listening to Focus on Why with me, Amy Rowlandson. To show your appreciation and to help other listeners understand what value you have received from tuning in today, please leave me an Apple Podcasts five-star review. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.